liberalism to me means a faith that the federal government should take constructive, positive steps to advance the interests of the ordinary rank-and-file American. 1972 Democratic presidential nominee George McGovern. Today on Now I Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. The 2020 Democratic National Convention is getting underway this week. Of course, thanks to COVID-19, it'll look a lot different than any other convention before. But let's go back 48 years to 1972, when the Democratic Party chose South Dakota Senator George McGovern as its standard bearer. Running on a liberal, anti-war platform, McGovern lost badly to incumbent Republican Richard Nixon that year. Nixon, of course, less than two years later, resigned in disgrace over the Watergate scandal. When I interviewed George McGovern in 2004, he had just published a book advocating many of the same liberal principles and values that he espoused back in 72. So here now, from 2004, George McGovern. I think many Americans who imagine that they're hostile towards liberalism don't know what the liberal record is. Virtually every forward movement in the life of this country has been a liberal initiative that was first opposed by conservatives and then later embraced. Look at the list. Social Security, Medicare, rural electrification, civil rights, aid to education, the environmental uh, movement, guaranteed bank deposits, and the list goes on and on. If, If there is some fundamental forward movement in the uh, life of this country that did not begin as a liberal initiative, I don't know what it is. So liberalism is one of our great honored traditions. Now, my mother and father were lifelong conservatives. I'm not against conservatism. We need both a strong liberal tradition and a strong conservative tradition. But liberals have to be proud enough of their tradition to stand up for it. It seems that in recent years they've been cowed. They've been somehow led to believe that being a liberal is a bad thing, is a negative thing, Will certainly won't get you elected. I've heard uh, people on television and on radio saying something like this. I'm neither a conservative nor a liberal. I'm a progressive pragmatist or I'm a pragmatic progressive. They sometimes turn it around. I don't know what the difference is, but there must be a profound uh, difference. Well, I'm proud to say that I'm a liberal in the tradition of Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Paine, um, of um, Andrew Jackson, of um, Abraham Lincoln, Mm -hmm. Woodrow Wilson, Franklin Roosevelt, and so on. These are all liberal-minded people, and they draw their inspiration from the founding documents of the country. And that's where you draw this book from. It is, you, you go back to the source. This is, this is the original, the bedrock of who we are. I think the greatest hope for America is that we'll return to the founding principles of this country, the Constitution with its Bill of Rights that guarantees our individual freedoms, the uh, preamble of that Constitution, which talks about things like uh, promoting the uh, defense, promoting the welfare of the average American, the typical American. Um, liberalism, to me, means a faith 
that the federal government should take constructive, positive steps to advance the interests of the ordinary rank-and-file American. That's what liberalism is all about. It's not, as many conservatives or Republicans would say, throwing money at a problem to try to solve it. It's not throwing money at the problem. Of course, if you're going to provide uh, health care for Americans and you're going to provide a stronger educational uh, program in this country for the schools, uh, those things cost money. But it comes back to us in even greater fold than the initial investment. You know, I'm a product of the GI Bill of Rights that came after World War II. I was a bomber pilot in that war. And when I came back to the United States after 35 combat missions, here was the GI Bill waiting. It enabled me to enroll at Northwestern University and go all the way through to a Ph.D. Uh, I can tell you I never would have been a United States senator or a candidate for the presidency had it not been for the GI Bill. Now, of course, that's enough to convince some people that the GI <laughs> Bill was a, a bad idea, I suppose. But uh, the interesting thing about the GI Bill, it cost billions of dollars. But a few years later, the Budget Bureau made a study, and they discovered that the government actually made money educating those tens of millions of mm -hmm. veterans. You know why? Because it increased their earning power, and mm -hmm. for the rest of their lives, the millions of GIs educated at government expense mm -hmm. paid more money in income taxes to the federal government. So these things do cost money, but they produce results. It costs money to start a private business, mm -hmm. but hopefully you make more money than if you weren't in business. And the same thing goes with government investment. Well, at some point, you suppose somebody will realize the light will light bulb will go on over their head, and they'll realize it's costing the nation more money than it is saving us to not have national health insurance. You know, um, I heard the uh, uh, director of the Federal Reserve system on television just yesterday. He was testifying up on Capitol Hill, and he said that one of the reasons why the United States finds it difficult to compete with some of the other countries now that we used to have an edge on is because after the first four grades, when our educational level is as good or better than the global average. After that, it tends to tail off so that many advanced countries have a better showing in their um, students after they get beyond the fourth grade than we do. And he said, as long as that situation is not corrected, we're going to have difficulty with our balance of payments and with staying competitive uh, in the world. So uh, here's a hard-headed economist who's been dealing with monetary and economic problems all of his life telling us that we've got to do better on the educational front. Now, that costs money. Sure it does. But I think the return in productivity, in creativity, in the overall capacity of people to contribute to the society is worth every dollar we invest in them. And that's what I mean by liberalism, putting the federal government to the service of education, to health care, to the environment, to better transportation systems, all these things that can best be done by public investment. 
What you're really talking about is liberalism not attached to one particular political party, aren't you? Well, that's right. I mentioned Abraham Lincoln as Mm -hmm. a liberal, which he certainly was. He uh, made statements in his lifetime that labor is the foundation of the economy Mm -hmm. and is more precious than management. Uh, So we need to keep that in mind. But uh, Lincoln was a was a liberal. He fought for the emancipation of the slaves. He fought for programs to benefit uh, farmers and uh, small business people. Uh, a Republican, founder of the Republican Party. Uh, there are there are lots of good things that have come out of the Republican Party. I'm a Democrat. I'm a liberal, and I'm proud of our record. I think that most of the forward movement in this country have uh, has been led by the Democratic Party and by liberals in both parties. Is it going too far that su- to suggest that even the creation of the EPA was a liberal act by Richard Nixon? Well, I give Nixon full credit for that. The uh, Environmental Protection Agency came out of the Nixon administration. He deserves credit for that. He deserves credit for having the courage to invoke wage and price controls at a time when the economy was uh, unstable. Uh, He deserves credit for the opening to China. They're now our most favored nation trading uh, Mm -hmm. partner, the detente with the Soviet Union. Nixon's great tragedy was the Watergate experience where he just threw the law aside, threw the Constitution aside, and then complicated everything by trying to cover it up. And it cost him the presidency. He had to leave shortly after the 72 campaign in which I was his opponent. But uh, liberalism is not the province only of Democrats. There are a great many liberal Republicans that would support the kind of things I outline in this book. Well, as you mentioned a few moments ago, if you ask people on the street, if you, don't ask them if you're a liberal or conservative. Just ask them, do you believe in this? Or open another page of your book, do you believe in this? Mm-hmm. I don't think you'd find too many people who would disagree with a lot of what you're saying in this book. I think that's very true. I'm perfectly willing to have this book read carefully and critically by lifetime conservatives, and I think they'll find that a lot of it makes uh, good sense. Uh, Let me say one thing else about this. I've always thought that the genius of American politics is the uh, creative tension that exists between conservatism on the one hand, liberalism on the other. And it's the competition, the discussion, the debate the battling for uh, a sound position between those two traditions that provides the real seedbed of the American political system. Do you think there's been enough of that recently, or are we just seeing everybody trying to rush to the center and quivering quivering over tiny little niggling issues instead of really forming a debate from two sides? Well, I don't like what's happening to American politics uh, today. Um, I think there's too much narrow partisanship. I think there's too much bitterness um, and too little uh, tolerance and congeniality or collegiality, if you prefer, of the kind that I believe uh, was present in the Congress when I was there. I don't claim credit for it. I was one of the beneficiaries of that system. When I first came to the uh, Congress in 1956, Eisenhower was president, a Republican president. The Democrats had control of both in the House and the Senate, but they worked together. Mm -hmm. 
In a sense, they had a kind of a gentleman's agreement that Eisenhower would direct defense and foreign policy questions and that Sam Rayburn and Lyndon Johnson would uh, develop the domestic program on agriculture, on education, Mm -hmm. transportation, and so on. And it worked out very well. I don't recall the kind of bitterness in politics in that period. Maybe the key word in what you just said was gentlemen, and now we'll add ladies as well because people, there was, there was a decorum in those days. There, there was indeed. That was one of the great tragedies of the uh, McCarthyism movie under the leadership of Joe McCarthy of Wisconsin. He broke some of the uh, bipartisan unity, some of the cooperation between liberals and conservatives and between Democrats and Republicans. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that he didn't last very long because he did great damage to the American body politic. I'd like to add this. I, I think that there are certain positive things uh, recommended in this book. We need health care in this country. We're rich enough to afford health care for every American, every other industrial country in the world has comprehensive health care for all of its citizens. And what I propose in this book is that we take a formula we're very familiar with, Medicare. Mm. We've had that on the books for a long time. <clears throat> and then just add a one-line bill, piece of legislation next year, and say Medicare is hereby extended to all Americans six years of age and under. Then two years after experience with that, extend Medicare to all Americans six years up to 18. Two years later, extended 18 to 35, and then 35 to 64, and that covers everybody. Mm -hmm. This is a simple idea that we all have had experience Mm -hmm. with. Everybody knows what Medicare is. I get it because I'm over 65 by quite a margin. (laughs) But I'd like to see my grandchildren Mm. get the same coverage, and I think that's what we ought to do. Following his 1972 defeat to Richard Nixon, George McGovern remained in the U.S. Senate until 1980 when he was defeated for re-election. McGovern died in 2012 at age 90. If you liked today's episode, would you please subscribe to Now I've Heard Everything? You can find us on all major podcast platforms, and we post new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything to commemorate National Radio Day this week, my 1995 interview with one of the greatest radio personalities of all time, Wolfman Jack. I remember when Elvis came out with his first record heartbreak hotel he was probably the only white artist on the whole program and it was quite unusual to have a white artist doing rock and roll back in those days you know that's next time on now i've heard everything i'm bill thompson